Psalm 22 and Matthew 26, they're not just the story of two Davids laid side by side. Not just a song written by the first David in the Old Testament and the story of the second greater David at his betrayal. We know this. Every Christian who has ever read, ever heard Psalm 22 for 2,000 years almost instinctively knows that David can't be talking about just himself. And in fact, nothing in David's life as we know it comes close to reflecting the anguish that he expresses in this psalm. This isn't the story of two Davids side by side in our liturgy tonight. Psalm 22 is the voice of the second David speaking through the first David a thousand years before he would actually suffer these things. David is at once describing his own suffering in poetic language, whatever the historical circumstances were. But it is a suffering which would be endured literally by his distant and greater son. And what did this son suffer? Incredibly, this psalm gives more of a grueling description of Jesus' unimaginable suffering than any of the gospel accounts do. Like a woman who is tossing out dirty washpan water in the streets of Jerusalem, so is the Savior's blood considered so cheap in verses 14 and 15. It pours from his back and sides, ripped open by the rocks and the bits of bone that have been tied to the leather whips of the soldiers. His heart is weak. It's melting like wax. Its beat becoming more and more faint as it waits and as it strains for more of the precious blood that's being lost through every pore. And so while the gospel accounts emphasize Jesus being beat up, this psalm demonstrates that in a very literal and very brutal way, Jesus is drying up. His body becomes like a piece of pottery dug up in the sands of Palestine. As verse 15 says, he can no longer move his tongue for it is stuck to the roof of his mouth, glued there by literal dust, picturing the dust to which Jesus will very shortly return as every man and every woman has since Adam and Eve. The gospel accounts tell us simply that Jesus was crucified, the authors knowing full well what horrors would come to the minds of their readers living in the Roman Empire. But Psalm 22 gives us a further description. The piercing of hands and feet in verse 16, his his body being stretched out unnaturally and pinned to the wood by spikes so that his bones can be counted by the crowds in verse 17. He's exposed, naked, his clothes taken and being made the centerpiece of a childish game that's now being played at his feet. 
But as graphic as the violence and the suffering are in Psalm 22, they're really used as upsetting and disturbing road signs pointing to the cause of all of it, the most disturbing thing in the psalm of all. Because much more than David ever was, on a greater and higher plane than David ever felt when he was hiding from Saul in caves, as he fled his palace from his treacherous son Absalom, even as he stood before Goliath himself on a level that's far beyond all of those experiences, Jesus was forsaken. Like so many people of God before and after him, Jesus was forsaken by his surrounding culture. Verses 12 and 18 picture for us a hunting scene. The strong predators are closing in on the weak prey that's been singled out and broken off from the group. The many are surrounding the one. The trampling strength of the strong bulls in verse 12. The ravenous hunger and roar of lions in verse 13. The incessant barking and the growling of the pack of wild dogs in verses 16 and 20. All the cunning and intelligence of human beings created in God's image merged with the instincts and the primal lust for blood found in predatory animals that are not so created. The crowds of Jerusalem are all alike in this respect. From the wealthy and the overfed that are carried around on their litters by sunburned slaves so that they never have to get their feet dirty, all the way to the lowest of the low. Those who are being ostracized by themselves, those who are always used to being ostracized, but who finally get this one chance to deal out years and years of stored-up payback. Every social class bonding together for the one purpose of enjoying a harrowing spectacle of watching a hero brought down underneath their collective boot so that it could rest on his throat. Jesus was forsaken like this. And so have many of his people. We've read of some of them even in Kenya today. Even worse, Jesus was forsaken by those who by their title and their offices and training were supposed to be the shepherds and helpers of men. Those who knew the scriptures from infancy those who dedicated themselves to a life of service and sacrifice and study and teaching. Matthew 27 tells us that while Jesus was on the cross gasping for breath, it was these elders, it was these teachers of the people who led the crowds in spitting the accusations of Psalm 22, verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him, right? And do you know who else quickly joined the chief priests and the elders in this mocking, according to Matthew? It's the robbers. The robbers that are crucified on either side of Jesus. In other words, the chief priests and the elders show themselves publicly to be in this same class 
as men who had robbed and murdered their way to receiving their bloody justice. They share in the same guilt, the same separation, the same condemnation of God. And here they are, questioning the favor of the favored one. Because in Jesus' being forsaken, the religious leaders could not grasp how being favored and forsaken at the same time could possibly be the fulfillment of God's promises. And Jesus was clearly forsaken. They were right about that. And even as the shepherds and the fathers of Israel, even as their shepherds and fathers, they had been more committed to forsaking Jesus than anyone else, save one. Many of God's people, including many here tonight, have shared in being forsaken by fathers and mothers and shepherds, those tasked with providing and protecting you, but who discard you instead. Many of them spiritual fathers and mothers. But cutting even deeper to the bone was Jesus being forsaken, not by the fickle culture and not by the government only concerned with maintaining power and not by those who'd been his doubters and enemies from the start, by his friends. Those who were exactly and precisely like us And this is why we observe Maundy Thursday as a congregation, actually. Because we're not just saying that Jesus died for sins on Friday. We're saying that he died for our sins, our forsaking of him, a forsaking, a betrayal that began on a Thursday night by intimate disciples who had lived with him for three years. We reenact and we join in their betrayal through liturgical drama. Like, like Judas who forsook Jesus because Jesus didn't add up to Judas's expectations. Didn't deliver in all the ways that Judas wanted from a savior. Didn't have Judas's prosperity and comfort and convenience as first on his list. So we have joined Judas. Like Peter who forsook Jesus because he became more afraid of the culture, more protective and safety conscience than Jesus was, more trusting in his own deceptiveness than he was in Jesus' power, so also we've joined Peter. We confessed to it earlier. We read it. And reenacted Judas's betrayal, and in a moment we're going to reenact Peter's. Jesus was forsaken by his closest friends, just like many of God's people have. Just like you and I have. Each one of us has been Judas, and we've been cashed in by other Judases who wanted the silver of ruining our reputations or feeling better about themselves or using us as as objects to achieve more power and more self-worth for themselves. We know both sides. 
We've collected the silver and we've been haggled over by other betrayers. But although all of these soul-piercing betrayals and acts of forsaking are told to us in the Gospels and in Psalm 22, the psalm begins with the worst forsaking there could possibly be. The psalm begins with the one who is more committed to forsaking Jesus than anyone else, more committed than the greedy Judas, more committed than the career-advancing Romans, more committed than the jealous and self-righteous and whitewashed Pharisees. David, before laying the responsibility for his suffering at the feet of treacherous men, shows himself to be a man of faith by pointing his finger up at the sky and he cries out in agony, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? Where are you? I know you can see me. I know you can hear me. So why do you let it continue? And this is what I want you to get tonight. This is the good news for us in Psalm 22 and the story of Jesus' suffering in the Gospels because this is where all the comparisons between him and his people stop. Whatever the circumstances were around David's suffering that made him feel forsaken, he ultimately was not. In verses 4 and 5 and 9 through 11, David looks back to the history of his people and his own personal history. David does what we should all do. When wallowing in the suffering of the present, David looks to God's faithfulness in the past for comfort. And at the end of this psalm, he is praising God for his deliverance because that's exactly what God does for the first David of the Old Testament. It's what he did for Abraham, stopping him from plunging his knife into his son of promise. It's what he did for Daniel in the lion's den. It's what he did for Israel in countless battles. But he doesn't do it for Jesus. And that's the good news of Psalm 22. On the cross of Golgotha, David's greater son is not just feeling forsaken. Jesus isn't undergoing what the Apostle Paul would call momentary light afflictions, afflictions that Paul suffered in great moments of torture and loss. No, Jesus went down a road of being forsaken that he absolutely had to walk alone. David and Paul and you and me and all God's people from every time and every place we may have endured great suffering, but we have never, ever followed Jesus down the forsaken road only paved for him. Jesus, the most beloved and most highly favored of the Father, as the Father himself pronounced at Jesus' baptism, is now hanging on a wooden crossbeam a symbol of not just being a social and illegal outcast, but a sign of divine damnation. Because cursed 
damned and forsaken is everyone who hangs on a tree, says Moses the lawgiver. And that would be the worst news of it all if it wasn't for this. Jesus tasted ultimate forsakenness so that we wouldn't have to. In verse 3 of our psalm, look and see which attribute of God David singles out in the midst of his suffering. You'd think that it'd be God's compassion or God's mercy. And for David, that's exactly what he ends up receiving, but that's not what David talks about. In verse 3, David says, Yet you are holy. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. You're the unspeakably holy one, Lord. And in forsaking Jesus on the cross, this this is exactly what God is demonstrating. Because not one ray of his shining holiness is lost at the cross. But it's rather kept and displayed. In forsaking Jesus, God is not winking at our sin and at our betrayals. For his son's blood and his son's righteousness and his son's very essence as man and God is too staggering and too wonderful to be considered so second rate. In his holiness, God chooses to forsake Jesus so that in his mercy, he doesn't have to forsake us. And so we should stop forsaking ourselves, should stop trying to build walls around ourselves of self-pity and self-imposed guilt and self-punishment over our many betrayals. Your walls will do you no good. You can't keep out the flood of grace and forgiveness that flows from the forsaken cross of Jesus. So stop trying to forsake yourself better than the father forsook his son. You'll wear yourself out trying only to find out that thanks be to God, it's impossible. Psalm 22 calls us to climb up into the lap of our father washed in the blood of of his forsaken sons that we can hear our father say to us because of him because of that one I will never leave you and I will never forsake you in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit